Welcome to City on a Hill Church, Forest Hills podcast. We exist to lead people to love, trust, and follow Jesus in everyday life. We're glad you're here and thanks for listening. More information on the life and mission of City on a Hill Church can be found at coahforesthills.org. venture to say that if you have a problem with the Bible, the most of our problems with the scriptures really come down to how we read the scriptures. It's not the Bible itself that's the problem, it's how we read the Bible because we end up looking for the wrong solution. We come to the Bible a little bit like if you were to watch a Kevin Hart stand-up looking for a moving drama, or if you were to watch Les Mis looking to laugh. You're, you're looking for the wrong theme from that form of entertainment. And it's the same with the Bible. We often come to the Bible looking for something other than what God intends for us to get from it. And often we come to the Bible looking for morals. We want to know how to live. And so we open up the Bible and we kind of treat it like, we try like, just like a, like a dictionary and we're looking through and go, okay, well, what does it say about being a good friend? What does the Bible say about being successful? What does it say about finding love or romance? What does it say about killing a habit? And it's not that the Bible doesn't have anything to say about morality. It's just not the primary thing about the Bible. And so when we look at the Bible and we're looking for how to live, we're looking for morals, we often look for moral heroes. We look for people in the Bible that we can emulate. We look for people that we can look to and we can pattern our lives after. And if that's what you're doing with the scriptures, you're going to come away disappointed with the Bible. Because every time you read one of these stories, you see somebody who's really messed up. And if you've been with us through the book of Genesis, you're really disappointed because there's not a lot of moral heroes here. Tim Keller tells us that the moral of all Bible stories is morals will never save you. You'll never be related to God if it's through morals and moral performance. And the reason that you and I go to the scriptures and we look for morals, we look for a how-to on the way to live is that even if you've been a follower of Jesus for many, many years, the default mode of your heart is to think that the way you are right with God is by what you do. The way that you become right with God is through your morals, through your morality. And if you do more good than bad, then somehow the cosmic scale of God's love for you gets tipped in your direction. But what if we're missing the point? The Bible is constantly trying to show us as we are because it keeps showing people as they are. And so the Bible becomes a mirror that's shining into the darkest parts of the human heart. It shows us exactly as we are. And so when we come to Genesis 38 this morning, a story that's honestly pretty strange a story that feels very uncomfortable, a story that's troubling that we send our elementary age kids upstairs during the sermon for, we come across a story like this and we say, how do people who do horrible things like this have any sort of chance? Why does God continue to keep rescuing this group of messed up people? And we have to ask ourselves the same question. If it was solely about your morals what you can do to please a holy God, do you honestly believe you've done enough? Do you honestly believe you've been good enough? Do you honestly believe you've done enough to please a holy God whose sin cannot enter his presence? And that's for our religious folks, but even if you're not religious, even if you're here this morning and you don't consider yourself a church person, you're just kind of exploring Christianity, you know you don't live up to this standard. And the reason is, is that there is a low-grade guilt in your heart that you know something is wrong. 
There's a low-grade anxiety in your heart that you're uncertain about tomorrow. There's a low-grade shame that you just can't seem to outrun because you can't even live up to your own standards of goodness, and you know that you're aiming at something you can't quite touch. And so what this text is trying to show you this morning is it's trying to show you your heart, but it's also trying to show you how you can be forgiven. I want to walk us through the text this morning, and as we, get at, as we get through that, I want to look at three big concepts that God wants to teach us. And so first of all, as David read in verse 1, it says, It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. Now, it says at that time, we need to look backwards one chapter, and uh, Pastor Mike from City in a Hill, Brookline, preached for us last week, so thankful for that. And he looked at the story of Joseph and his brothers and how Judah and Reuben and all the other brothers betrayed Joseph. Uh, they were going to kill him. They, Reuben finally decided, well, I want to try to get back in dad's good graces. Uh, I'm not, we, we shouldn't kill him. Let's just sell him into slavery, which sounds so much better. And so I guess it's better than killing him. And so uh, each brother is trying to cope with this situation differently. Each brother is trying to figure out, how do I deal with my guilt? How do I deal with my shame? And so Judah, in the middle of this scenario with his brother, just sort of leaves. This evil against his brother, he avoids it, he runs away, and he moves on. All of us are trying to atone for ourselves. All of us are trying to find a way to remove guilt. We're trying to find a way to remove shame. So we do this through either balancing the good and bad. We try to make up for it or outwork it or, or be a better parent or a better friend or a better partner. And we see this in Judah because Judah says, I'm going to move on. I'm going to leave this behind me and I'm going to start my own family. He comes from a really broken home. We see this in verse 2 where it says there, Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. So he goes and he marries a Canaanite, which was very much a no-no in his family. They've been told to stay inside the covenant family. He marries her partly as a way to rebel against his dad, but also to prove that he could be a better dad than his dad. We see this at the end of verse 2. It says, he took her, she was daughter, and went into her. So he married her, they had children, and she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. Again, verse 4, she conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan, and then five, verse 5, yet again, she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Chezeb when she bore him. He started this family, and back then, being able to have a lot of kids was this picture that you were proving yourself, that you were somebody of importance. But we notice that Judah can't outrun his past. He can't outrun his, his upbringing. He can't, up, he can't outrun his flaws, and those flaws begin to get passed down to his family. Verse 6, and Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. Verse 7, but Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. He marries Tamar, who we're not sure what ethnicity she is. She may have been Canaanite, she may have not been, but we know that the focus is upon his son Ur, who does something that is wicked in the sight of the Lord to the point that God is willing to kill him. Now, as we've looked at the scriptures, we know that this has to be something really, really evil because this is the first time that God has individually killed a person. And if you think back on the history of this family, they've done some pretty messed up stuff. Cain killed his brother. We saw that. Noah's grandson uncovered his nakedness, the whole mess with Lot and his daughters. Abraham uses Hagar. Shechem sexually assaults Dinah. 
And here we see something really, really evil occur to the point that God is going to kill him in his steps. He is dead. And we have to trust the justice of God here, that God knows what he's doing. Verse 30, uh, verse, uh, chapter 38, verse 8, we see, Then Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. Now, this seems really odd to us. Like, you know, your, your husband dies and then your brother-in-law has to step in. Odon, the second son, is being sent in. The reason they're doing this is there was an ancient custom called leveret marriage, which was that to continue the family line, the next person in line would step in in order to continue the blessings and the inheritance of the family. But what you also notice is that this was, this was a means to protect the wife. This was a means to protect a widow who would have been vulnerable physically and financially in a world where she couldn't go to work. She had no options for education. She was completely beholden to this family. In fact, in chapter 25 of Deuteronomy, this whole thing is codified in such a way to, to protect women. Leviticus and Deuteronomy get a really bad rap. I know they're like, that and numbers are the worst part of the Bible reading plan. Just trudge through. There's good stuff in there, I promise. So Onan has an obligation but you notice a couple of problems right out the gate. It says in verse 8, it, it, uh, Judah simply says, go into your brother's wife. There's some language here that may seem like they don't even get married. Just go fulfill the vow. But worse than that, in verse 9, it says, but Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. He didn't want to give his brother kids. Now, this is not some sort of saying like you can't use contraceptives or, or prevent to try not to become pregnant. But there are two evils that we see in verse 9. Number one is that Onan is incredibly selfish. He doesn't want to give a kid through Tamar because he has a lot to lose in this situation. If Tamar never has a child, the entire inheritance comes to him. But if he does have a child by her, that child gets the inheritance. So incredibly selfish. But secondly, he chooses to simply use her. I'll have sex with her, but I don't want a future with her. I'll use her, but I don't want to have kids with her. And this is why God reserves sex for the confines of marriage between a man and a woman, because it's meant to be in a forever committed union that reflects safety and security and eternity. Onan desperately misses this. Verse 10, we see that God kills him as well. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord. And he put him to death also. So at the beginning of verse 11, we see that two of Judah's sons are dead. Judah is really, really dense. He blames this on Tamar. He says, then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. Somehow this is Tamar's fault, not the fact that his sons were wicked, as if she's some sort of bad luck charm. There's a movie in the early 90s with Mike Myers, Shrek, in case you don't know what he looks like. And so, uh, so Shrek, and Mike Myers is in this movie called So I Married an Axe Murderer. And in this movie, there's a woman who keeps marrying different men who keep getting murdered every time they get married to her. It turns out to be her sister and not her. The blame gets placed on the wrong person. Tamar has no blame in this situation, but because Judah abdicates his responsibility, she is trapped in widowhood, which meant that she had to go to her father's house. She could never marry again. 
She could never have children again. And this was your worth in the ancient world. So Tamar, probably someone in her late teens, has to spend the rest of her life alone. And Judah basically says, don't call me, I'll call you. This family is deeply corrupt at every level. It gets worse before it gets better. Verse 12, in the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hira the Adulamite. So the course of time happens. Judah's wife dies. We believe this is probably 5 to 10, 15 years later, enough time for his youngest son to become eligible to marry. And we see here that Tamar realizes that Judah's never coming through on his promise. Verse 13, and when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's uh, widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up and sat at the entrance of Anaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shalah was grown up and she had not been given to him in marriage. She knows that Judah is never going to do right by her. He is going to leave me this way forever. And so she takes matters into her own hands. Now, you need to understand what's happening here with Judah. When sheep shearers would get together, this was one giant party. They were getting, it was one big, giant, drunken party. It's like the stereotype of businessmen going to the strip club when they go out of town. This was a wild, raucous party with prostitution and sex and all sorts of craziness. And so she goes into the midst of this. She takes off her widow's clothing, which would have, we're not sure exactly what that is. It'd be like dressing down, wearing black, not anointing your skin with oil. She trades that for prostitute's clothing. And this likely would have been a higher class prostitute, probably a cult prostitute. She puts a veil in her face, which would have increased allure in that time. And so the question is, is how did she know Judah was going to fall for this? Because she knew the kind of man that Judah was. He was a shrewd man. He was a man given to his desires. And in verses 15 through 19, we see how this whole thing plays out in the most unromantic fashion possible. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, come, let me come into you. In other words, let me have sex with you now. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, what will you give me that you may come into me? So you got to pay for this. And he answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock, which would have been a pretty big price. And she said, if you give me a pledge until you send it. And he said, what pledge shall I give you? She replied, your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. A signet would have been like a small piece of stone, like a cylinder that you would mark, uh, mark like an envelope with, like a wax seal. The cord would have been what that would have been attached to. And the staff would have likely had an inscription of his family. So here, Judah gives up his authority, his name, and his power for some cheap thrills. So he gave them to her and went into her and she conceived by them. Then she arose and went away, taking off her veil. She put on the garments of her widowhood. This transactional approach to sex where it's all about pleasure. It's all about how someone makes you feel just simply using another person. So I want to pause here for just a minute. And the question is, is is Tamar sinning? That's That's a pretty loaded question. Is Tamar sinning? And on one hand, I will say yes. I mean, sexual sin is sin. But I also think this reveals that she's a victim to some real social injustice. 
There's a double standard here for men that Judah can go have sex with whoever he wants to have sex with, and Tamar has to be a widow for the rest of her life. Tamar is flawed, but she is going after justice. She is the closest thing, and I say closest, to a hero that we could possibly see in this text. And what this text actually does is blows up our liberal and conservative understanding and paradigm when it comes to justice. The progressive end of justice says it's all high justice. This person's only a victim. There's no guilt. The traditional end says high morals. This person is guilty no matter the circumstances. And so I think we see, we've seen this even like in a major shift in the way that say prostitution's been policed, that sex workers are seen as not just people who are doing wrong, but as victims in an unjust system being taken advantage of by men. I actually think the gospel gives us a much more robust vision of justice than the world could possibly give us. We see in verse 20 that Judah gets hustled. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adulamite, to take the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, where is the cult prostitute who was at Anaim at the roadside? And they said, no cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also, the men of the place have said, no cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, let her keep the things as her own or, she, or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat and you did not find her. This was very embarrassing for Judah. This very important man who has put his dignity and his reputation and his integrity on the line for some cheap thrills The servant's gone and she can't find it. Robert Alter, the Hebrew scholar, says this would be the equivalent of leaving your wedding ring on the hotel nightstand, the equivalent of leaving your wallet and your credit card at the nightclub. He says, let her keep these things. It is too embarrassing for me to to deal with my shame and what I've done. And I want you to think about the things that are secret in your life. What would embarrass you if it got out? Now, years ago, there was a list that was produced from Ashley Madison, which was a website that was for married people to have discreet affairs. The internet, everything gets out eventually. And a lot of very prominent people were on this list, but it doesn't have to be that extreme. What if someone posted a log of your text messages? What if someone posted your, your search history? Sin always finds you out. And we see in verse 24 how Judah's sin, no matter how much he tries to hide it, finds him. It says in verse 24, about three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And here you see Judah's hypocrisy. How dare she? How dare she do this to me? How dare she do this to my family? He even goes on a little further, and we see his hatred. Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. Doesn't Judah understand how this whole thing works? There are two guilty people in this situation that he just committed the same sin. Why is he being so heavy handed with her? I think there are two reasons. Number one is personal guilt has a way of making you react harshly to other people. When you feel guilty, you tend to be very judgmental. And the most judgmental people tend to be the harshest on other people because they tend to be hiding something. And so if, you, if you're a person who's given to being judgmental, what might you be guilty about? Secondly, is he created a narrative about her over the years. It's her fault my sons are dead. See, I, I knew she was always trouble. I knew that she was the problem, but we see that he gets exposed very quickly. Verse 25 
even though he wanted to give her the most brutal possible punishment, reserved for the worst crimes and being burned. It says in verse 25, as she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. And Judah knows he's busted. His sin is in the open. Tamar has been vindicated, but this is a woman who still feels unloved. And so we're left asking, what hope is there for Judah? What hope is there for Tamar? What hope is there for restoration and reconciliation in this situation? And if they're like us, what hope is there for you and I? There are three lessons that God wants to teach us from this text. Number one, God wants to teach you about your heart. He wants you to see your heart. In this text, you see the full range of human sin in the human heart. You see Ur's evil. He did something so evil, God killed him. You see Onan's selfish ambition that he was willing to use Tamar, but not for her good. You see Judah driven by his lust and his desires. And we even see Tamar who failed to wait for God and his justice. And what you should see is you should see yourself too. In fact, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus took the law, how we know how to please God, and he pressed it deeper. He said, it's not just about what you do. It's not just about your outward actions. It's about your intentions. It's about what's going on in your heart. And so he says, maybe you've never killed anybody, but have you ever hated someone in your heart? You're just as guilty of murder. Maybe you've never committed adultery or some sort of physical sexual sin, but have you ever lusted in your heart? You're just as guilty. He goes on, have you ever broken a promise? Have you ever lied? Have you ever not loved your enemy? Have you ever not cared for the poor and the oppressed? Have you ever failed to honor God? Have you been anxious in such a way that you failed to trust Him? Have you judged other people? And if you make it out of that list without seeing yourself, you're lying to yourself. The Bible is trying to get you to see your heart. You are no different. We are all sinners with no hope of saving ourselves. And God will not seem good to you. He will not seem like someone who can save you until you stop trying to save yourself, until you stop believing that you can do enough good and be a good enough person. So God wants you to see your heart. But secondly, God wants to teach you about change. Here at the end, Judah begins to change. This is really beautiful. You see the early seeds of this that we'll see in in full bloom when we get to Joseph and his captivity and his freedom in in a couple of weeks. We see that first he owns his sin. Verse 26, Judah identified the the signet and the cord and and the staff and said, she is more righteous than I. He doesn't say she's righteous, doesn't say she's guiltless, but he doesn't excuse his own sin. He doesn't justify it. He doesn't say, well, well, she's just as guilty as I am. He doesn't say, well, you know, I was really lonely. My wife just passed away. You need to understand why I would do this. He doesn't say I couldn't help myself. He doesn't say she tempted me. He owns it. Every human heart seeks to justify itself. So when you fail, when you sin, when you're cross with a coworker, when you're cruel to your friends, when, when you're dishonest, do you own it or do you excuse it? 
when you fail to owning your mistakes, what you're really saying is, I just want this to go away and I'm going to try harder next time. But if you don't own it, you'll never change. Secondly, he turns from it. Look at the end of verse 26. And he did not know her again. Repentance, real change requires you to turn away from evil. It requires you to turn away from injustice. It requires you to turn away from using people and selfishness to say, I see this is wrong. I know it's wrong. I know this hurts people and it doesn't honor God. And I want to be different. We see that this is the change that we all want. And you know you need to be different. You know you need to put down habits. You know that you need to change the way that you treat other people. But here's the problem. You can't just commit to change your behavior. Tim Chester says, our rituals might change our behavior for a while, but they can't change our hearts. And so they can't bring true and lasting holiness. We need heart change. You need a new heart. If you've not received a new heart, you need a new heart because you can't change it on your own. So how do we do that? Lastly, the last lesson, the good news, God wants to teach you about grace. Why did Judah change? Because of God's grace. God was gracious to use Tamar to show him his sin. He was gracious to use Tamar to show him his guilt. God changed his heart by showing Judah how bad his condition was, that there was no proving, no promises, no plan, no pathway that was going to do it, that you can change, but it's going to require grace. And he shows grace to change Judah. And what happens in Judah's life is that the birthright skips unrepentant, unchanging Reuben and lands on Judah because of grace. Only changed people by grace can receive God's blessing. And here's how that leads to blessing for you and I, how it leads to grace for you and I. Look at verse 27. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, at one put out a hand and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, this one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out and she said, what a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore, his name was called Perez. Afterward, his brother came out with a scarlet thread on his hand and his name was called Zerah. Why is this important? Because if you go to Matthew chapter one and you look in the genealogy of Jesus, you see the name Perez, which the word means breakthrough. We've received a breakthrough of grace because of God's grace to Judah. We've received this because the lineage of the Messiah, the chosen one, the one who would come and live the perfect life comes through this broken family so that one day Jesus would come and live that perfect life and die on the cross for our sins so that we could receive grace. And what this shows us is the type of people that God extends grace to. He extends it to the worst like Judah. Maybe this morning you're sitting here and you're thinking, I am the worst. There's no way that God could forgive me. He forgave Judah. He can forgive you. Maybe you feel like Tamar. You feel used. You feel oppressed. You feel downtrodden. God extends his grace to you through Jesus. What's interesting is there are four women in the genealogy of Jesus. Every single one of them would have been used, oppressed, and downtrodden, and God uplifts the lowly. And God extends grace to people like us, like you and I. There's grace to change, but that grace to change is only possible because Jesus is the better Judah, the better Judah who loved and cherished his bride, the church, who gave up everything on the cross 
for you that in Christ, Tamar never has to put on the widow's clothes again. In Christ, she never has to put on those widow's clothes. And in Christ, you never have to put on the clothing of guilt and shame ever again because you wear the perfect righteousness of Jesus. And so as we close, three questions to consider, especially if you're wrestling with whether you know Jesus this morning, is number one, do you see your heart? Do you see your heart for what it is? Ask God to help you see your heart. Secondly, do you want to really change? Not just outward change, heart change. And then thirdly, as we receive the grace of Jesus to change you this morning, it's as simple as receiving it by faith. Let's pray.